Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, which is just right after 2 Timothy. We'll be looking at Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. Titus 1, 10 through 16. Before we hear these verses read, God's word read, let us go to our God in prayer. Grant, Almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may, be, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness, and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused this day by your words, and that we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name, and thus present ourselves in all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your celestial habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Titus 1, 10 through 16. Hear now the word of God. For there are many here, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As a human carnivore, I enjoy the carne. I enjoy the, the meat, the flesh of animals. I especially like meat from chickens. Not all chicken meat, mind you. In recent months, I've been a bit more selective with my food. I don't mean that I inspect all the labels for chicken meat that I, that I might eat, though perhaps I should. In fact, I don't even buy the meat. My wife does. What I mean is that I will eat all the chickens that come my way, except for five. Those are my chickens. We don't eat them. We prefer their eggs and fellowship. So we, we keep them a little bit closer to us than we do any other chicken. I've learned rather recently that my, my role is to be more than a recipient, more than a, a beneficiary of these eggs and this fellowship. It is to be a protector as well. Probably a month or so ago, I shared about that raccoon that I had to drive away. It was in the forest, and it was checking out my chickens. And I had to drive it away with a salt gun. Perhaps last time some of you heard me say an assault gun. It was not an assault gun. A salt gun. I shot it up in the air, 
He's fine. I'm sure he's living the raccoon dream that they live. I didn't harm him at all, but I've not seen him. Chickens haven't seen him, thankfully. But other predators took his place. Just in the last couple few weeks, I was called upon by my my chickens' restless cries and the chickens of our neighbors to save them, to save our neighbors' chickens from hawks that would be most delighted to eat our birds. If that wasn't enough, another sinister creature made its way into our backyard. The most sinister indeed, because it finds its origin in that ancient serpent. When I was in the backyard one afternoon enjoying a pipe and a book, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed some movement slithering on the ground. The chickens, being dumb, thought little of it, started to investigate the thing, perhaps even wanted to play with it, I don't know. And I saw what it was, it was a snake, and I ran over to a brick that I had, and I stoned the snake. But behold, it still lived, it was surviving, but it was trapped under the brick. So I called my wife, who was in the house, babe, get my machete from the shed. And so she did, and she gave that to me, and like Samuel did to Agag, I hacked that wicked serpent into pieces. It had an egg in its belly. I had to protect our chickens and their products. It had to go. It wasn't a pretty thing, but I knew my chickens were in danger, and so I had to protect them. Well, noticed that predators come from everywhere. They are at eye level in the forest. They are above in the sky. They are slithering below the land. Such now is home life for the mocks. Such is the life of the church as well. There are many threats, and they seem to come from everywhere. They come from within the world that come from within the church. The question before us is, what are we to do? What has God done? Well, connected with last week's lesson, that God had appointed godly men, we see that God's appointed men must sharply silence the doctrinally deviant. We see again in verse 10, read this with me, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So we left off last week with Paul's direction to Titus that when he appoints godly men as elders, as as overseers, as stewards of the house of God, they must do two things. They must be able to teach and rebuke. Now, Paul shows us that though he is absent, he is, he's not unaware of the threats to the church order that he says must be put in place. He knows the troublesome people that Titus is facing. And Paul does not pussyfoot around the errors of these opponents, indeed, the enemies of the church. He's direct. The people he has in mind, he says, are insubordinate. They are empty talkers. They are deceivers. They do not subordinate their minds, their affections, 
their wills to the standard, which is the word of God. With corrupt hearts, they speak vanity, only vanity, emptiness. Their speech is here today and is gone tomorrow, because what they say is not the word of God that stands forever. They speak lies, utter deception. Their word is indeed contrary to the word of God. The men that Paul has in mind are mainly, if not exclusively, of the circumcision party. This means they are Jewish men who favor the importance, nay, necessity of circumcision. This was a belief that many held in Paul's day. He was combating this wrong-headed thinking over and over again. People would say, you have to be circumcised, even in this new covenant, in order to be justified, in order to be saved. As Paul goes on in this chapter and in chapter 3, he paints the picture of their hearts with vivid colors. He paints their hearts with bright red for their inflamed, lustful impurities as they deny the God of all purity. He paints their hearts with green for greediness as they use their teaching for shameful gain. He paints their hearts with dark red hues for their tendency to argue with, with passion, with deep passion, with zeal, but not according to knowledge. doesn't align with the truth. He paints their hearts with all shades of gray as they cloak their vanities with deception, with sleight of hand. And the background of this portrait is black for the death in their hearts that, that deadens all of their works. This is the kind of person that, that Paul is speaking against. These mainly Jewish men were devoted to myths, Paul says, and to man's commands. It appears then that some Jews in Crete were acting the Pharisee. What exactly they were teaching is perhaps unknown to us, but if what Paul speaks to Timothy about is in his mind here to Titus, and as I was arguing last week, 1 Timothy and, and Titus have a lot of parallels written around the same time as well. If that's the case, then he has in focus their prohibition of marriage and certain foods. People saying you can't get married, or people saying you have to abstain from certain foods. But whatever the problems were, Paul saw them as detrimental to the health of the church, to the soundness of the church. If you read Titus, you see over and over again, in just these three short chapters, the theme of soundness, of health, over and over again. I encourage you to, to read Titus this afternoon and highlight all the words, all the times he uses, uses sound or healthy. That's his concern, that the church would be safe and sound, that the church would be healthy, it would flourish. And any threat to that church order, any threat to that, 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 that sanity, that, that soundness, must be addressed. And so we see as a point of application already, verse 11, that doctrinal division upsets families. They must be silenced, he says, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This word upsetting is used by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he uses it of those false believers who have upset the faith of some by saying that the resurrection has already happened. Can you imagine being a believer and your only hope is the resurrection of Christ 
And you know that as he is risen, you too will rise one day, only to be told, you missed it. That certainly would upset your soul. Certainly upset the family that you lead. Certainly upset the, the, the church that you're a part of. To now suddenly be told, well, Christ already rose from the dead, and others rose from the dead, and you, you got left out. John uses this language as well when he speaks of Jesus overturning the tables in John chapter 2. Remember, he, he upset the tables, turned them over because of their godlessness, because of their hypocrisy, because of their shameful gain. Deceptive doctrine divides, it ruins, it overturns households, whole families, as Paul says here. Here. It's like the cancer in the body that infects all of the organs that won't just stay put in one area, affects everything, the whole system of life, until the body eventually breaks down and dies. It's like the mold in the walls of a house that extends to the ceiling and to each room, leaving the home unlivable. If this is not checked on time, the only remedy is to break it down and to rebuild Good doctrine, sound teaching brings life to the home. This is why we, as Reformed and as Presbyterians, as Bible believers, we love doctrine. We love teaching. This is why you get a lot of teaching. This is why some come here, because they want the meat of the word. This is what we are providing. This is what Paul tells us to do. This is what God has shown us we are to major on. It is the giving of sound instruction. It stabilizes spirits. It steadies the soul. It gives life because it is coming from the word who is life. It gives life to the individual. And not just to the individual, but to whole households. It is a power that God's spirit uses to create and to enliven entire households, entire towns, nations, But lying doctrine, deceptive doctrine, does the opposite. It brings death. It brings disease. It is disease that then permeates the whole and disintegrates it. We see the challenges in marriages, in working relationships, in those friendships of spiritually mixed company. We see that theirs is not an easy road, that doctrinal disagreement is the road that they travel on. That's what they're familiar with. We do not envy them. We pray for them. And you can expect those relationships to be fraught with sorrow, even hostility at times, because as far as their commitments are concerned, they are worlds apart. John Calvin once wrote a letter to a woman whose Roman Catholic husband was spiritually oppressive in the home. He was forbidding her even to leave the house. You can imagine, you can just picture... That man coming in front of the doorway saying that his wife could not leave the house. Because if she did, that would mean she might go to a Protestant land where she can be free to worship. And so she began, I'm not sure how it happened, but she began this correspondence, this secretive correspondence with John Calvin. And she was receiving regular encouragement from the reformer. And some of his encouragement to her, some of his, his correspondence included the encouragement for her to, to groan unceasingly, to cry out to the Lord, 
given this oppression, but to pray to be firm in the faith, to be firm in the faith in the Lord. He says how vexatious and hard to bear, how annoying and how troublesome and hard to bear to be under such spiritual and physical enslavement. Of course, this is not restricted to the 16th century. This happens in homes everywhere where husbands will keep their wives in and won't let them leave. What fueled, in in this case, what fueled this home of hostility rather than promoting a a home of hospitality? It was the deceptive doctrines in Rome. That's what what, what the issue was. That's That's how Calvin saw it. That's how this woman saw it who had, by the grace of God, converted to the truth. What's bad for the goose is bad for the gander. Doctrine divides not just individuals, not just families, divides entire churches. It divides the house of God. The church has known the doctrines of demons to, to seek a sevenfold dwelling in the temple of God. It might be the rejection of an historical Adam. It might be the addition of anything to the work of Christ. It might be the denial of the sovereignty of God. It might be the displacement of the moral law of God or the abandonment of male-led homes. It might be the prosperity gospel. It might be the incorporation of woke theology or the downplaying of homosexuality. It might be the acceptance of transgenderism. It might be even as innocent-sounding as Disney's theme, listen to your heart or follow your dreams. Now, I will confess that I would, in the biggest fan of the movie Tangled, best, best movie for kids and adults. But there's, she's got a dream. Follow the dream. It's typical of just the Disney, Disney life. Follow the dream that's in your heart. If that means disobeying your parents, as, in, as Moana is encouraged, fine. Because you are the authority, Disney is saying. You determine what's reality. And we would all do well to examine the lies that we ourselves are believing, the deceptions that threaten to undo Cross Creek. Whatever it is, if it is left unchecked, it will destroy. It will destroy the individual. It will destroy the family. It will destroy whole families. It will destroy the church. That's what bad doctrine does. It destroys It leads people astray. And if we ended there, there would be no hope. But we are reminded that all is not lost because Christ has promised that the church would not be destroyed, that the gates of hell would not win against the church. They would not prevail. They could not prevail upon the offensive attack of the church And one means of prevailing, one means of gaining victory, we see here is rebuke. Verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. The elders appointed are to silence the enemy through sharp rebuke. Now, this doesn't mean that 
The church leaders are to shut the opponent's mouths literally, you know, pressing down on the lips, lest the doctrines of demons spring out of hell and onto the church. Ours is not a ministry of, of physical force, spiritual force, the Word of God. As we minister the Word of God, as we declare the Word of God, it has the power in the very ministry, but it does mean that we stop the spreading of error. It must stop. The teaching must be silenced. One of the opponents of the church in Calvin's day was Michael Servetus. Now, if Calvin gets any press, it's usually bad press. And if Calvin gets the bad press, it's usually about Michael Servetus. don't have time to discuss the whole complex of events with, with, that, uh, with that man and that conflict. But he was an anti-Trinitarian He was a rabble-rouser. He was a godless man who sought to divide the church with his writings. He hated the church. Now, Martin Butzer, who is often considered a temperate man, and he gave us great counsel for caring for the soul. You could say he was a counselor in the 16th century. He once declared in the pulpit that Servetus was worthy of having his bowels pulled out and his body torn to pieces. Such wickedness of Servetus warranted these sharp words. You don't hear any, I don't think you hear any pastor saying those things from the pulpit. Uh, Not to say that they couldn't or shouldn't, but you don't hear that. You really can't get away with that kind of language these days. But he saw the threat to the order of the church. He saw the disease, the, the harmful effects that this man, and through his teaching, was, was doing. And he called him out. And he warned the flock of this wolf. Now soon, Servetus was to be burned at the stake because of his godless teachings. But the reality was that his devilish doctrines would survive. So the question was, well, what do we do with these, these teachings? Calvin wrote to some of the pastors in Frankfurt who had copies of Servetus' writings, and his plea was to them was, I quote, to purge the world of such noxious corruptions. There's the poison in those writings, the harmful effects of those writings. Get rid of them. Let not any remain in the world. If you see them, burn them. Now, with our modern American sensibilities, we might balk at that. We might object to Calvin's counsel, arguing on the basis of freedom of speech. But you have to commend his efforts to suppress, to silence any teaching that threatens to undo the spirits of his saints, of God's saints. And we must ask ourselves, you must ask yourselves, shall your elders say any teaching goes on here as long as it is sincere? Now, we don't want to be offensive, after all. We want everyone to have his say. Let's just, be, let's just be nice when he says it. Is that the approach that you want to take? Many of you are nodding your, or shaking your heads. No. Of course you don't want that. Why would you want that? Why would you want the, the error to creep in ever closer? You want elders who give you the meat of God, who teach you the word of God who preach the sound instruction. That's what you want. That's why you are here. Not everyone gets to have his say. 
Sometimes rebuke comes in the unlikeliest of sources, like pagans. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Imagine you notice the irony in this, in this quote. Here we have a Cretan who is telling the truth, who is saying that all Cretans are liars. Of course, this man is making a general statement about his own people, and Paul says, yeah, that's right. Cretans, on the whole, are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This Cretan got it right. This Cretan is Ephemenides of Crete, who lived in the 6th and 5th centuries, and, and he knew his people well. The Cretans' reputation sailed beyond their island. Cicero himself speaks of them this way, moral, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. These people had such a reputation for moral looseness that eventually their name became a verb. Cretidzo. You hear the word Crete in Cretidzo. It means to play the Cretan or to lie. It's like when some people today are, are called Karen, even though their name isn't Karen. This is not to speak against Karens who are given that name Karen, but you know the word Karen is used today as a, as a pejorative, as an insult, a negative word, to refer to a, an uptight, middle-class, do-gooder, white woman. And her delight is to speak to the manager. You know, that's you know, a summary of what a Karen does. So to call someone a Karen is not a good thing if they're not Karen. To call someone a Cretan is really either an insult or a recognition that a recognition that, that person has no moral grounding. It's not a good thing to be called a Cretan. And we wonder, could, could Paul have cited Scripture to rebuke the Cretans? Absolutely. Though he doesn't do that here. He cites an outsider, a pagan even, someone who has only the light of nature in him, who doesn't get everything right. And sometimes this is, this is Paul's way of rebuking Christians. He, you, you recall he speaks to the Corinthians that their immorality even makes the Gentiles blush. It's like saying to the church that they can learn a thing or two about Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't want to hear something like that. Calvin summarizes the rebuke. God has given you the light of the gospel, and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, rules in your midst, but it takes an ignorant and sightless man to climb into the pulpit to condemn you. That's a big ouch. You're, he's saying, you're not going to hear the word of God. Okay. Here's a, here's a pagan who doesn't have the word of God indwelling him by the power of the Spirit, and he gets things right, and he is a testimony against you. It may take a Jordan Peterson to rebuke the church for her work on feminizing men. Jordan Peterson, someone that we often will read and, and, and watch, listen to, but someone who right now has not bent the knee to the lordship of Christ. But he gets things right, though not completely. And he even spoke against different Denominations, even the Christian church and Protestants, according to him, were the worst because we're not allowing men to have their place in the church. Too much focused on feminizing them. 
And elders do this sometimes when they allow women to be the preachers, and they'll have to be held accountable to that. Or even recently, a, a pastor was arguing for the neutrality of having his nails painted. He said, that's okay. Okay, well, you do know that in America, if you paint your nails, that is typically a sign of being feminine. And here you are, a pastor, promoting that. Okay, well, that's a problem. So it might take an unbeliever used by God to wake us up, to rebuke us sharply. Pulling the pagan down from the shelf does have its uses, but in line with his earlier words, Paul wants the elders to rebuke with sound doctrine. That's the heart. That's the, that's the instrument that we already employ to get to the heart. It is this grace from God that cuts away at our sinful flesh, that strips off the decay. It is the word of life that has power over the deeds of darkness, of deeds of death, and it is the, the word of life that has power to energize new life. With Scripture, the cancer of devilish doctrines is eradicated. We need not less, but more doctrine. We need high and, 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 and deep doctrine. We need high doctrine because we, live, we serve an exalted God whose thoughts are too high for us. And we serve a God whose depths we cannot plumb. Let us go deeper and deeper. Let us go higher and higher with the Reformed teaching, with the sound instruction, because that is what our people need. Because sin is no plaything, Scripture must be wielded as the Spirit's sword against flesh. Instruction is essential, but here here we see, so is a sharp rebuking, so is a severe silencing of sin. As the sun silences the storm, his appointed elders now use his word to silence the raging storm of sin against God's elect. From these words, then, we hear a word to both the leadership and church members. A word, then, to you elders, as you oversee the hearts of others, ensure that yours is overseen by Christ. Daily submit to the sound instruction of the Word of God. Prayerfully submit to that sound teaching. Say, Lord, by your Spirit, cut at my heart. Teach me. Reprove me. Correct me. Train me, O Lord, in righteousness. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness. Then make it clear in your instruction but especially in your rebuke that you love the sheep, that you desire their spiritual soundness, their healthy growth in godliness. Make that known. Combine truth with gentleness, love. You do not show love to God's people by saying nothing to them, by thereby lulling them to sleep. That does them no favors, but enables them to continue to be deluded, to be self-deceived, or to be deceived by the teachings of wolves, of the insubordinate, the empty talkers, the deceivers. Lead with gentleness. But if they refuse, 
You mustn't fear severity at times. It takes a, a hard word at times. This is serious stuff. And it takes the deft use, the skillful use of the word of God to rebuke. Now, a couple weeks ago, I wrote the introduction to the sermon, and I had the chickens at number six. And if you heard this morning, I mentioned my five chickens. So in the time of writing an introduction to today, we are one less chicken, not because we used it for our meat, because one of those predators sought it. And I was in the, my office, just in the home office, and the front door, I'm just, I'm just right outside the front, or just inside, and the front door's here, and here's some wrestling, some, here's some movement and some squawking in the bushes in front, and I, this has been happening a couple weeks, so I run out of the front, see some feathers flying, see a hawk coming out and dropping a poor little bird, Ash. And she is down there on the ground, writhing and bloody. And I tried to revive her as best as I could, but what do I know about reviving a chicken? This poor little thing squirms and dies in my hands. Poor little sweetie bird. One of our children said, why does this have to happen? She she did no one any harm. She just gave. She just gave eggs. She was our most reliable egg layer. But here she is. And I'm reminded of a couple things. First is, the Lord Jesus cares even for the littlest of birds. He cares when the sparrow falls and dies. How much more then does he care for you? You who are made in the image of God. How much more compassion does he have for you? If I could be all sappy and sentimental about this little chicken, how compassionate, how tender is our Lord Jesus Christ towards us, his elect, those for whom he came, those for whom he died, those for whom he sent his spirit, that we might be indwelt by his spirit and to live in a manner pleasing. The second thing I was reminded of was of the need to be always on guard for the elect. To not take a day off. Yes, to make the necessary preparations to protect, to provide. But constant vigilance, constant looking after the state of the flock of God for whom the good shepherd died. The threats to the order of their hearts might come from their hearts, elders. The threat does come from without, but it also comes from their own hearts because we're all sinners. So wherever you see a threat to right order, the right ordering of the heart, Instruct and rebuke sharply at times. Do not lose heart when God's people refuse to be corrected. Expect it. It comes. And endure it. Entrust the matter to the Lord. 
Examine your motives, why you will teach, why you will correct, why you will rebuke, and strive to be at peace if possible. And then a word to the church. True preaching, true instruction does not consist in being allowed to cover up your sin filth. We all have it. We all need to be cleansed. You must ask yourself, will you choose to be flattered? Will you choose to be led in righteousness and faithfulness? Will you choose to take pastoral correction as a love and rebuke? Or will you reject it? Will you bear patiently with that discipline, with that government and discipline of the church to which you make your vows? As a fire in the house must be extinguished right away, so must our sinful arrogance. As a man who refuses to eat, who ends up hurting only himself, will you deny yourself the bread of God given for the care of your soul? Or will you prove to be the disciples of Christ, bearing fruit when you're taught, when you're reproved, when you're corrected, when they seek to train you? Will you, in a word, O sanctified of the Lord, pursue all purity as your God is pure to the glory of Christ. If we do not want the unbelieving world to condemn us, the very world that we are said will judge one day, if we don't want to have the tables turned on us, then let us receive humbly the correction wherever it is given. Indeed, if we want to grow into the maturity of Christ, into the ever-healthy church Christ has called us to be, let us see his word in all of its fullness as a sword against our flesh, and as balm for our spirits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we now know, teach us more deeply by your Spirit that our lives will reflect a zeal according to the knowledge and love for your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.